0: Hello, everyone. This is Paul Aronowitz back for questions 26 through 30 in the Rheumatology section of Internal Medicine Essentials. Uh, Before I begin, though, I just want to mention a couple of important developments in these podcasts. Uh, The first one is that we have new cover art. So if you're streaming from Mountain Lion or uh, downloading from Mountain Lion on SoundCloud, you'll notice that we have a new cartoon Mountain Lion in a white coat with a stethoscope. Uh, I was the creator of that, so feel free to leave comments on SoundCloud if you approve or disapprove. I'm happy to get some different cover art if you'd rather uh, listen to this in the accompaniment of more serious cover art than the cartoon Mountain Lion, uh, although I'm partial to it myself, of course, as the creator. The second big development is that we're now available on iTunes, so if you'd rather subscribe through iTunes or listen through your iTunes collection, uh, you're welcome to do so there. These are continuing to be free podcasts that you can download either from SoundCloud. Uh, I have made them publicly available as well as downloadable with each upload that I do. And you can also download for free on iTunes. So, uh, I also want to thank the American College of Physicians, uh, Dr. Phil Masters, there. Um, there are many authors involved in writing the Mixap Internal Medicine Essentials, who contributed to these volumes. Uh, you can get a list of those contributors uh, from the website for Internal Medicine Essentials. And I really appreciate the ACP's willingness to have us uh, both uh narrate and tape and upload these recordings because they see this as being an important component of internal medicine education for medical students, whether they're going into internal medicine or not. Um, So enjoy the new cover art, and I hope you can take advantage of the fact that we're now available on iTunes as well as on SoundCloud. Uh, And after announcing that this was available on iTunes yesterday... I did notice a significant uptick in listens uh, to these questions. Um, we're somewhere in the neighborhood of a 1,000 uh, downloads or listens to date on SoundCloud, so we'll see what happens now that we're available on iTunes. Without further ado, uh, we'll start with item 26. A 20-year-old man is evaluated for a six-month history of low back pain accompanied by prolonged morning stiffness. His symptoms improve over the course of the day, but he is now unable to play recreational soccer. Rest and physical therapy have not improved his symptoms. Use of acetaminophen or ibuprofen provides only partial relief. He has no other pertinent medical history and takes no additional medications. On physical examination, vital signs are normal. There is no loss of normal lumbar lordosis, and flexion of the lumbar spine is decreased. The low back and pelvis are tender to palpation. Pain increases when the patient crosses his legs. Reflexes and muscle strength are intact. Radiographs of the lumbar spine and sacroiliac joints are normal. Which of the following studies is most likely to establish the diagnosis in this patient? A. Bone scan. B. Computed tomography, or otherwise known as CT, of the sacroiliac joints. C, magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, of the lumbar spine, or D, MRI of the sacroiliac joints. And again, those choices are A, bone scan, B, CT of the sacroiliac joints, C, magnetic resonance imaging of the lumbar spine, or D, MRI of the sacroiliac joints. Well, I would consider this to be a fairly advanced question and hopefully you will know more than you did before you initially uh, thought about this after we discussed the answers. So the answer here is D, which is uh, that the patient uh, should get an MRI of the sacroiliac joint. So let me go into the reasoning for that. So this patient most likely has ankylosing spondylitis and Magnetic, magnetic resonant imaging of the sacroiliac joints is the most likely thing that will establish the diagnosis. Radiographic evidence of sacroiliitis is required for definitive diagnosis and is the most consistent finding associated with this condition. So in terms of the clues in that question, really, uh, one of the big clues was the fact that the pa- patient has pain, which increases when he crosses his legs, which is indicative of sacroiliac joint inflammation. Uh, The uh, fact that he has uh, decreased flexion of the lumbar spine is a clue to ankylosing spondylitis, but is somewhat uh, less specific than the fact that he has pain uh, when he crosses his legs. Uh, So the onset of ankylosing spondylitis usually occurs in the teenage years or in the 20s, and it usually uh, manifests as persistent pain and morning stiffness. Again, this patient has morning stiffness involving the low back that is alleviated with activity. Uh, It can also be associated with tenderness of the pelvis, which this patient also is noted to have on physical exam. That was also a, a helpful finding. So the earliest radiographic changes involve the sacroiliac joints, which is why that's where the money is in this test question. Uh, But these changes may not be visible during the first few years from the onset of the disease. Uh, So this patient's normal x-rays of the sacroiliac joints do not exclude the diagnosis of sacroiliitis. Um, MRI findings are much more sensitive. um, They can include bone marrow edema, synovitis, and erosions. And bone marrow edema, by the way, is the earliest finding and can precede the development of frank erosions that you would see either on CT scan, MRI, or plane films. Got a little beep in my recorder there. I'm not sure what that was about. Perhaps the battery is growing low. So uh, MRI, especially with gadolinium uh, enhancement, is considered a sensitive method for detecting early erosive inflammatory changes in the sacroiliac joints and spine and can assess sites of active disease and response to effective therapy. So really, the whole point in this question is that you want to go where the money is, which is the sacroiliac joints in ankylosing spondylitis. And the other thing is that you want to go at that, uh, where the money is, with the highest sensitivity type test you can do, which is the MRI scan in this question. A bone scan can demonstrate increased radionuclide uptake of the sacroiliac joints in patients with uh, ankylosing spondylitis, but is less sensitive and specific than MRI. Uh, Computed tomography is very sensitive. Uh, to demonstrate bone changes such as erosions, but it can't detect early changes such as bone marrow edema that precede erosive change in patients with ankylosing spondylitis. So that would not have been the best choice. Uh, And then uh, finally, in terms of whether you do a lumbar spine MRI versus a sacroiliac joint MRI, I think a lot of people would actually do both. Um, So this is sort of a trick in this question. However, um, the... Changes in the lumbar spine can be detected on MRI, but they're usually preceded by changes in the sacroiliac joints. So if you're looking to make the diagnosis earlier, you'd go for the sacroiliac joints, plus minus the lumbar spine as well, since he has symptoms there. So the key point in this question is that MRI is considered the most sensitive imaging study for detecting early erosive inflammatory changes in the sacroiliac joints, indicative of ankylosing spondylitis, when... uh, radiographs are normal. By the way, if the radiographs had been abnormal, I'm not sure that you necessarily would have had to uh, get the $5,000 MRI scan. Item number 27, a 24-year-old woman is evaluated for a three-week history of pain and swelling of the right knee and left ankle. The patient also reports mild burning with urination. She has no history of tick exposure, skin rash, diarrhea, or abdominal pain. She has not been sexually active in the past month. She takes no medications. On physical examination, vital signs are normal. Musculoskeletal examination shows swelling, tenderness, warmth, pain, and range of motion, and an infusion of the right knee. The left ankle is also swollen and tender. Serologic studies for Lyme disease are negative. Your analysis reveals 18 leukocytes per high-power field and 2-plus leukocyte esterase, but is otherwise normal. Aspiration of the right knee shows a synovial fluid leukocyte count of 7,500 per microliter and negative gram stain. Synovial fluid culture results are pending. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? A antinuclear antibody testing, B. Rheumatoid factor testing, C. Synovial fluid testing for Lyme disease, or D. Testing for chlamydia trachomatis infection. I'll give you a moment to consider again the answers. A. Antinuclear antibody testing, B. Rheumatoid factor testing, C. Synovial fluid testing for Lyme disease, or D. Testing for chlamydia trachomatis infection. So the answer in this particular question uh, would be D, uh, which would be testing for chlamydia trachomatis infection. And uh, this is also a fairly advanced question, but one you would be expected to know for the internal medicine shelf, the USMLE Step 2, and probably for the internal, in fact for sure for the internal medicine board exam if you're a resident listening to this recording. Uh, This patient should have urine nucleic acid amplification testing for chlamydia trachomatis infection. She has an acute arthritis of the right knee. Now, I'm going to tell you that I disagree with the explanation in this book that says she has an enthesitis of the left ankle, at least based on the information we're giving. She has at least an arthritis of the left ankle. So she has acute arthritis of the right knee in the left ankle, along with urethritis, all of which can occur with disseminated gonococcal infection. The explanation in the Internal Medicine Essentials says she has an enthesitis of the left ankle. But just to clarify my disagreement with uh, their uh, characterizing her presentation is that we're not told that she has tenderness at any of her entheses. So what are entheses? Entheses are areas of the bone where ligament or tendon insert, so a good example that would be where the Achilles tendon inserts in the heel, that would be an enthesis, and if they describe tenderness at that point, that would be an enthysmopathy or enthesitis, and they're not describing that in the question, um, they're including it, and it's a little bit unfair, I have to say. Uh, So, in the absence of any recent history of sexual activities, findings are more suggestive of reactive arthritis that can develop after C. trachomatis infection. So, reactive arthritis occurs in both men and women, and enthesitis and oligoarthritis are common. Remember, oligoarthritis is just a few joints involved. Uh, and polyarthritis is a bunch of joints involved. The classic triad of arthritis, urethritis, and conjunctivitis occurs in only about one-third of patients, and symptoms typically develop two to four weeks after an infection. So remember that classic triad, arthritis, urethritis, and conjunctivitis. The old uh, can't see, can't pee, can't climb a tree, so the can't climb a tree is the arthritis part. The can't see is the conjunctivitis or uveitis part. Um, And then the camp P is the urethritis part. But keep in mind that only a third of patients get all three of those things at once. And so they can have two or less uh, symptoms and still have reactive arthritis. Also remember that we used to call this this complex of symptoms uh, and findings Reiter syndrome. But we no longer call it that because Reiter, it turns out, was a Nazi. And so now we refer to this disease as reactive arthritis. So the classic pathogens associated with reactive arthritis of course include most commonly chlam- Chlamydia trachomatis but other enteric pathogens such as Campylobacter, uh Salmonella and so forth have been linked with it Gonococcus has been linked with it and a number there's a number of other sort of um indefinite ones not quite proved but suspected Um, So C. trachomatis infection can be asymptomatic. Uh, An examination of the urine sample can establish the diagnosis. So if infection is uh, proved to be present, antibiotic treatment is warranted, and sexual partners should also be counseled and treated. But the treatment for the actual arthritis and enthesitis and so forth is non anti-inflammatory drugs as first-line therapy for the musculoskeletal symptoms the antibiotics will not be effective in treating the reactive arthritis. And I can tell you that cases that I've seen of this particular entity, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs have worked wonders, like 24 hours, and they're 80% better. So you definitely want to pull out the non-steroidals early in this disease. As far as anti-nuclear antibody testing, which was, I believe, uh, choice number A, um, or letter A, uh, so uh, that's helpful in the diagnosis, of course, of uh, systemic lupus erythematosus. And you can get arthritis, of course, in lupus. You can also get pyuria, which uh, typically occurs uh, in the situation where there's glomerular nephritis. Um, but SLE would not be associated with lower urinary tract symptoms, such as frequency and urgency, as in this case. And she has nothing else going for SLE, so she should not have made this choice. Remember, if they're going to give you a question with SLE in it, they're going to give you some other characteristics, as they did in earlier questions in this uh, section about lupus. Rheumatoid factor—not uh, a terrible choice, but uh, you know, for the nineteenth time here in this section. Remember, the RF can be uh, present in approximately seventy percent of patients with rheumatoid arthritis. But this disorder, as you know by now, typically presents with symmetric small joint polyarthritis. And remember, it's usually symmetric, not always early on, but usually symmetric and small joint polyarthritis. What joints does it attack? It tends to be the metacarpophalangeal, as well as the proximal interphalangeal joints. And this does not explain this patient's urinary symptoms as well as her pyuria. So it would not have fit well in this question. Now. <laughs> This is another thing I'm going to ding this question on. I think this question should be thrown out in the next version, or it should be altered. Um, patients' negative Lyme disease serology results indicate she has, does not have Lyme arthritis, and testing the synovial fluid for Borrelia burgdorferi infection is not needed. In patients with Lyme arthritis, testing by polymerase chain reaction can detect detect B. burgdorferi DNA in the synovial fluid, But a synovial fluid PCR test has not been widely validated for use. But I will tell you that um, this is one of those situations where we're trying to practice high-value care, and there's no history that we're given in this test question that this patient had exposure to uh, Lyme uh, endemic area. So what would those areas be? It would be Minnesota, uh, upstate New York, Dutchess County, Ulster County, uh, Old Lyme, Lyme, Connecticut, East Haddam, which is in that area around Lyme and Old Lyme, uh, Fire Island, uh, and so forth and so on. So if the patient does not report having been in a Lyme endemic area, does not report a rash or a tick bite, you shouldn't be getting uh, the Lyme disease serology. So I uh, disagree with them having ordered that based on what we're told in the test question, but perhaps there is more information that they didn't tell us, which led them to think that the Lyme serology was indicated. So don't order it if it's not indicated as the bottom line. Um, and of course, if you shouldn't have ordered it and it came back negative, then that's nice and reassuring for all of us, but you sure, certainly shouldn't send a B. burgdorferi DNA in the synovial fluid. So a key point in this test question, which... I have some problems with. Obviously, is that detection of pathogens such as chlamydia, trachomatis, in patients with arthritis, urethritis, conjunctivitis, and/or enthesitis supports a diagnosis of reactive arthritis. Know this disease. You will get a question on it, probably on the shelf, and/or step two of the USMLE, and for sure the ABIM exam. Uh, if you're a resident listening to this before you've taken your ABIM board certification test. The summer after your third year residency. Item number 28. Uh, is a question I have less trouble with, of course. 24-year-old man is evaluated for worsening low back pain of six months duration. He notes severe back stiffness on awakening in the morning or after prolonged sitting that seems to improve with activity. He otherwise feels well and has no other symptoms. Medical history is significant for Crohn disease diagnosed four years ago that has been well controlled with daily mesalamine. On physical examination, vital signs, including temperature, are normal. Cutaneous examination, including the nails and oral mucosa, is normal. There is no evidence of conjunctivitis or iritis. Musculoskeletal examination reveals moderate tenderness to palpation over the low back with decreased ability to flex at the waist. The remainder of the examination is unremarkable. Laboratory studies include a normal hemoglobin level and leukocyte count and negative rheumatoid factor which is the, of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A, enteropathic arthritis, B, psoriatic arthritis, C, reactive arthritis, or D, rheumatoid arthritis? Again, A, enteropathic arthritis, B, psoriatic arthritis, C, reactive arthritis, or D, rheumatoid arthritis? So the answer in this question is A, which is enteropathic arthritis. This is Uh, a type of arthritis that's associated with uh, gastrointestinal conditions such as Crohn's disease. Um, And this is called enteropathic arthritis, which is a relatively new term, I believe, uh, because I don't remember seeing this um, in the last couple of mix-up for students, but I could be wrong there. So up to 20% of patients with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis develop inflammatory joint disease polyarthritis that resembles seronegative rheumatoid arthritis develops in 20% of these patients, whereas 10 to 15% of these patients develop spondylitis and sacroiliitis. The risk for inflammatory joint disease associated with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis increases in patients with more advanced colonic conditions and additional concomitant extraintestinal manifestations. What are those extra-intestinal manifestations? Well, they would be things like abscesses erythema nidosum, which we'll talk about probably in the derm section of this book, uveitis, and pyoderma gangrenosum. So peripheral arthritis associated with inflammatory bowel disease or enteropathic arthritis is often classified as one of two types. In type 1 arthropathy, the peripheral arthritis tends to be acute, affects only a few joints, and tends to occur early in the course of the inflammatory, disease, inflammatory bowel disease and it may worsen with flares of IBD and is often self-limited. Type 2 arthropathy that occurs in this enteropathic arthritis is where more joints are involved and symptoms may be migratory. Joint pain is usually not related to IBD activity, and symptoms may wax and wane over years. In patients with arthritis sensitive to flares of IBD, treating the underlying gastrointestinal disease is indicated as it will make the arthritis better. And the ones that have arthritis unrelated to flares of IBD, treating the IBD probably won't make a difference. Additional treatment for sacroiliitis and peripheral joint disease is otherwise symptomatic, by the way. So, Psoriatic arthritis was one of the choices. This is a systemic chronic inflammatory arthritis uh, that we may come to in some later test questions. Associated with numerous clinical manifestations, they can get joint pain that appears similar to rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, They can have cutaneous involvement that may be limited to nail pitting and commonly precedes joint inflammation, although 15% of patients develop joint inflammation first. Uh, there's no clear relationship to IBD, and this patient's lack of cutaneous findings makes psoriatic arthritis unlikely. So, the point sort of here, and we'll come back to this in a later question, is that about 85% of patients that get some sort of arthritis related to psoriasis will have skin findings and nail findings first. There's a small number that will have nail findings first without skin findings that precede the arthritis, but In the real world, you're usually going to see skin changes before you see arthritis. So as far as reactive arthritis goes, we talked about that in the last test question. Um, That usually manifests within two months of an episode of bacterial gastroenteritis or non-gonococcal arthritis, as in the last question, um, in a genetically predisposed patient. Um, So... In this particular question, the patient does not have urethritis. Uh, um, it does not have conjunctivitis, just has arthritis. So it makes reactive arthritis less likely, and they don't really give you a history of sexual being sexually active so that he'd be at risk for um, uh, non-gonococcal or chlamydial uh, trach- C. trachomatis infection. So... Um, since he has none of those things, this would not be reactive arthritis. And finally, rheumatoid arthritis, which has sort of beaten this poor disease to death. It's a symmetric, usually symmetric polyarthritis that involves the small joints of the hands and feet, as well as other joints throughout the body, and is a consideration in a differential diagnosis. Um, but it does not have an association with inflammatory bowel disease. So when you see something like that in one of these test questions, they're usually not going to give you a patient with two different diseases. Um, It's sort of considered uh, outside the norm. Uh, And so this patient wouldn't be presenting with rheumatoid arthritis in a setting where they already have Crohn's disease. So since there's no association with Crohn's disease, uh, enteropathic arthritis is a much better choice. So, a key point in this question. Arthritis is a recognized extra-intestinal manifestation of several gastrointestinal diseases, including inflammatory bowel disease. Item number 29. A 42-year-old man is evaluated for a one-month history of a painful swollen right finger and a swollen left toe. He has no other symptoms and generally feels well. He has not noticed a skin rash. Medical history is unremarkable, and his only medication is as-needed ibuprofen for his joint pain. On physical examination, vital signs are normal. The right third distal interphalangeal joint is swollen with localized tenderness to palpation and pain with active and passive range of motion. The appearance of the nails is shown in plate 29 of the book, and I will uh, upload that image to this podcast, uh, and it will go with the five questions in this section. So if you're looking at this on a uh, desktop or laptop, you should be able to see... The fingernail, and if you're not, uh, I will describe to you that it appears that the patient has some onycholysis, um, or I should say, onycholysis is the uh, correct pronunciation of that word, but I like to say onycholysis, as do a lot of other physicians, um, as well as uh, excessive nail pitting. So, examination of the left second toe shows fusiform, that's sort of the entire thing with a tapering effect, swelling, and mild diffuse tenderness with decreased active and passive range of motion. There's onycholysis or onycholysis of several toenails, including the left second toenail. The remainder of the examination is normal. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Choices are A, Lyme Arthritis. B, osteoarthritis, C, psoriatic arthritis, or D, rheumatoid arthritis. Again, choices, A, Lyme arthritis, B, osteoarthritis, C, psoriatic arthritis, or D, rheumatoid arthritis. So the correct answer in this question is C, which is uh, psoriatic arthritis. Um, So, psoriatic arthritis is a systemic chronic inflammatory arthritis associated with numerous clinical manifestations. Um, So, typically psoriasis, as we talked about uh, in that last question, um, predates the arthritis by years, whereas arthritis develops before skin disease in only 15% of patients. So, this is a tough question, although they're giving you a very good clue in the physical exam findings shown in plate 29 and uploaded for this question. Although there's a poor correlation between the severity of skin and joint disease, there's a good correlation between the severity of nail disease and the severity of both skin and joint disease. So it's a bad nail disease like onycholysis, which by the way is separation of the nail from the nail bed, and it usually occurs in a distal to proximal fashion. So that's onycholysis, separation of the nail from the nail bed, uh, as well as the pitting. So the more severe that is, the more severe the skin and joint disease tends to be. Psoriatic findings may also be limited to just nail pitting and onycholysis. There's five patterns of joint involvement in psoriatic arthritis. So there's involvement of the distal interphalangeal joints. There's asymmetric oligoarthritis, remember that's just a few joints being involved with arthritis. There's symmetric polyarthritis, which can look similar to that of rheumatoid arthritis. And then there's arthritis mutilans, which is extensive osteolysis of the digits with striking deformity. And finally, there's spondylitis. So the characteristic features of psoriatic arthritis include enthesitis remember that's inflammation of sites where tendons or ligaments insert into bone dactylitis which is inflammation of an entire digit sometimes described by the way as sausage digit if you've ever seen it it's pretty remarkable and tenosynovitis which is inflammation of the synovial sheath surrounding a tendon so this patient has findings characteristic of psoriasis Psoriatic arthritis, including inflammation of a distal interphalangeal joint and dactylitis or sausage digit of a toe. And then the other kicker is that he has uh, nail changes, including pitting and onycolysis. Onico- as far as Lyme arthritis goes, this typically involves medium or large sized joints like the knee rather than distal interphalangeal joints and does not typically cause tenosynovitis. Um, uh, furthermore, this disorder does not cause nail changes as seen in this patient, so you would not see onycholysis with Lyme disease. And again, if the choice, uh, correct choice was Lyme arthritis, they would give you some kind of history of exposure to ticks or a rash, travel to an endemic area, and so forth. So um, that was not a great choice if you made it. And I hope that you'll um, think <laughs> over the fact that you didn't get it right and not and anyway, whatever. Osteo, uh, osteoarthritis can involve the distal interphalangeal joints, but does not cause dactylitis or nail changes. So, that was also a, um, a, a, not a correct answer. Rheumatoid arthritis uh, can initially present with an asymmetric pattern, but again, as we've talked about multiple times, it's usually symmetric distribution. Uh, and in contrast to this, patients patients with rheumatoid arthritis typically have sparing of the distal interphalangeal joints and preferential involvement of the proximal interphalangeal joints and metacarpophalangeal joints. And then, of course, rheumatoid arthritis does not cause nail changes. So, if you hear nail changes, think psoriasis, whether the skin changes are present or not. That's my my key point there. Their key point in this question is that psoriatic arthritis is associated with various patterns of joint involvement, most notably distal interphalangeal joint involvement, and is characterized by enthesitis, dactylitis, tenosynovitis, and cutaneous involvement, such as nail pitting. So hopefully that all is clear. So the final question in this section uh, is item 30. A 46-year-old woman is evaluated for pain and color changes in her fingers and hands. She has had these symptoms for several years, but they have worsened since her diagnosis of limited systemic sclerosis one year ago. She notes that her symptoms occur mostly with exposure to cold, such as taking items out of a freezer or when not wearing gloves outside in the winter. She also believes that stress may make her symptoms worse. During an episode, her fingers turn white and become very painful, then blue, and over 15 to 20 minutes become red with eventual resolution of her pain. Her episodes are worsening despite her efforts to avoid cold exposure and minimize stress. Medical history is significant only for gastroesophageal reflux disease, and her only medication is omeprazole. On physical examination, she is afebrile, blood pressure is 122 over 68 millimeters of mercury, and pulse rate is 82 per minute. Examination of the hand shows sclerodactyly, but with evidence of normal perfusion. The radial and ulnar pulses are normal bilaterally. The remainder of her examination is unremarkable. Which of the following is the most appropriate additional treatment for this patient? Aha, a treatment question. But you have to know what the disease is to know what the treatment is, right? So A, amlodipine. B, iso- isosorbide dinitrate, C, metoprolol or D, prednisone. Again, choices A, Amlodipine, B, isosorbide dinitrate, C metoprolol, or D prednisone. So the particular answer in this question was A, which is amlodipine. This patient has what's known as Raynaud phenomenon, which I think you all probably picked up on, which is present in more than 95% of patients with systemic sclerosis, and is particularly likely to develop in patients with limited cutaneous disease. The most appropriate treatment for this patient is a long-acting dihydroperidine calcium channel blocker such as amlodipine. So uh, to talk about systemic sclerosis a little bit here, it's classified according to the degree of skin involvement. So there's systemic sclerosis with limited cutaneous involvement or CREST syndrome. And what is, you know, you always get asked this on the wards and in class and so forth. What does CREST stand for? Well, CREST. C is for calcinosis occurs in the fingertips. R is for Raynaud phenomenon. E is for esophageal dysmotility. S is for sclerodactyly. And T is for telangiectasias. So uh, this usually manifests as skin-thickening distal to the elbows and knees. Conversely, systemic sclerosis with diffuse cutaneous involvement is associated with skin-thickening proximal to the elbows and knees. And finally, there is a classification which is diffuse and limited cutaneous systemic sclerosis, which may affect the face. So as far as Raynaud phenomenon goes, uh, it's an abnormal vascular response to cold exposure or stress and usually involves the extremities, mostly the hands. Although Raynaud phenomenon may occur in the absence of another disorder which in this case we'd call it primary renewed phenomenon. It frequently accompanies connective tissue diseases in which there are believed to be microvascular changes that alter normal vasoconstrictor activity. So, for example, in systemic sclerosis, you get infiltration with fibroblasts due to some unknown stimulus, and that then causes uh, this uh, loss of thermoregulation and so forth in the extremities. So episodes commonly involve an initial onset of vasoconstriction lasting for 15 to 20 minutes with ischemia, that's the white phase, or cyanosis, which then is the blue phase, with erythema, which is the red phase, developing with reperfusion. So they go from white to blue to red, and I think that's always a hard thing. to. If they went red, white, and blue, it'd be easier to remember. So the way I remember it is we be red, W for we, white. Uh, D for blue, for the cyanosis portion, and red for red, which is the erythema portion where they're reperfusing. So white, blue, red. That's my little tip for the day. In patients with Raynaud phenomenon, cigarette smoking is contraindicated and avoidance of cold is generally recommended since that's what usually brings on the symptoms. Uh, pharmacologic therapy would be warranted for patients in whom interventions like avoiding cold and avoiding stress aren't working, uh, such as in this patient. And the first-line therapy would be this dihydroparidine calcium channel blocker, such as amlodipine, which has been shown to reduce the frequency and severity of attacks in patients with both primary and secondary renoid phenomenon. Um, so we would, you know, pick that as the first choice unless there was some contraindication or the patient had a problem with it. You can also use antiplatelet agents such as aspirin and diperimidol, which is persantine. Uh And then there's the phosphodiesterase type 5 inhibitors such as sildenafil, which reduces development of digital ulcers. Um, but again, those would be sort of more second-line therapy surgical revascularization has been used, and this is usually in really severe refractory cases. I don't think I've ever seen uh, a case of surgical revascularization for this, but I'm sure a rheumatologist uh, would have had experience with that, which I am not a rheumatologist. So topical nitrates can be applied to the finger webs uh, in the treatment of Raynaud phenomenon, but are usually used as a second-line therapy. Oral therapy with nitroglycerin is less effective and less well-tolerated, so uh, Isosorbide dinitrate in this situation would not have been the choice um, uh, and and so the other thing about question whether prednisone would be a choice um, this process does not respond to anti-inflammatory agents therefore prednisone is not indicated in the treatment of Raynaud phenomenon and a beta blocker such as metoprolol was one of the choices here uh, are not indicated in the treatment of Raynaud phenomenon. They actually worsen the symptoms by preventing beta-adrenergic-mediated vasodilatation. So, so do not use beta blockers in patients with Raynaud phenomenon. Use dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers. So, key point: use of dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker is warranted in patients with Raynaud phenomenon in whom cold avoidance does not provide sufficient relief. And that's the end of this section. I hope you have a chance to check out the uh, new cover art, uh, both on SoundCloud as well as on iTunes, and that you're able to find us on iTunes. If you go into iTunes and search Mountain Lion Podcasts, uh, it should pop up at the lower left uh, on the search field if you're under Podcasts. Um, and then finally, if you have any comments regarding these uh, narrations, these podcasts, uh, you can make those either on SoundCloud. There is a section under each podcast for comments. Uh, you can also make comments now on iTunes. Um, and I think that's in the... Uh, well, you'll be able to find it. I'm not sure where that is on the page, but iTunes has a nice, clean approach to all of this, so you should be able to locate it if you want to make any uh, give me any constructive feedback, um, either uh, positive or negative. Actually, constructive feedback would probably be negative, but um, I'm happy to have positive feedback, but constructive feedback would be helpful as well. And I know you'll tell me, please get rid of your Bell's palsy because you sound weird. I'm working on it. I really am. It's been a long, slow road to recovery here. Thanks, and have a great day.